Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. This is your host, Zach Geist. Today I'm here with Charlie Morley. Uh, I came on to Charlie Morley's book, uh, Dreams of Awakening. It's one of his books. Uh, because I'm always looking for different lucid dream books to dive into and different uh, thought leaders in the lucid dreaming world. But uh, rather than explain uh, Charlie's history on lucid dreaming, I wanted to ask him uh, a little bit about himself and uh, what brought him to uh, lucid dreaming and how it's basically uh, essentially taken over a lot of his working and sleeping and waking life. Cool, man. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you in the cyber world. Um, yeah. So how did I get into lucid dreaming? It's every time I tell this story, I realize it's like a myth. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I struggle to think like, did that actually happen? I keep on having to go back to like definite points that happened. But yeah, the myth is that, um, in fact, no, this is, this is definitely true. I checked with my dad recently for my 12th birthday. So I was 11 years old. My 12th birthday, I asked for this thing called a Nova Dreamer which is like this sleep mask with a little computer in it. And it recognizes rapid eye movement, the REM of rapid eye movement sleep, and then flashes red lights bright enough to penetrate your eyelids, but not too bright to wake you up. Um, and it's supposed to give you lucid dreams. And I remember reading about this in the kind of gadget section of the newspaper uh, before my 12th birthday and asking my dad for one um, and saying, so I knew what lucid dreams were. I knew I'd had them before because I used to wet the bed till quite late and um, wetting the bed would help me get lucid in the dreams. Um, so I asked my dad for all part of a master plan. Yeah. All part of the master plan. Right. And of course my first tip for lucid dreamers out there is if you're in a lucid dream, don't use the bathroom. It's a, it's a trap, you know, don't, don't do it. <laughs> so anyway, I asked for this thing, the Nova dreamer. I didn't get it. Uh, you know, it's $200. Uh, but then that's my like first memory of like, you know, definitely being interested in lucid dreaming. And then when I was 16, I got into, um, into smoking loads of weed, into psychedelics, uh, but also through that kind of mind expansion into Buddhism and into lucid dreaming again. This time I bought the book. I taught myself how to do it properly. Um, and the first couple of years- Which was, book? Sorry? Wh- which book? You said you bought the book. Which book? Uh, Stephen LaBerge. Yeah, the kind of classic Stephen LaBerge, uh, Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming. That was the first one I read. And also, Same person that invented the Novatel. Yeah, the Nova uh, Dreamer, well, exactly. Right? Yeah, so I never got the Nova Dreamer, but I did, did get his book eventually. Um, and yeah, taught myself how to do it. But it's 16 years old, right? You, you teach yourself to do this practice where you essentially gain access to a virtual reality simulation made of your own psychology. You know, an elusive dream for, for, for you know, viewers or listeners who don't know, this is a dream where you know that you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So you're not half awake, half asleep. You're totally asleep. But in the dream, you go, oh, shit, this is all a dream. This is all made of my mind, right? So at 16, when I was having those experiences, the only thing I wanted to do was skateboarding and sex. So I'd be like, you know, just calling out for hot girls and skateboarding. I was probably calling out for Pamela Anderson, that showing my age. I remember doing that once in Lucid Dream. Um, and, you know, these, these women would manifest and I'd get to be skateboarding and having sex and all the stuff I wasn't doing in real life at 16. Um, so the first couple of years were just spent on that. But as I said, I was also getting into Buddhism at that time, um, but I was doing far too many drugs and partying to really get into it. But when I was 18, 19, I had a, um, actually the partying got really intense. I had a, a drugs overdose, which led to this near-death experience. And the near-death experience led me to get really interested in Buddhism because they had all this stuff about the death bardos and all that. 
And also just the fallout was I had really bad panic attacks and nightmares after the NDE because it was really traumatic. The nightmares led me to take lucid dreaming seriously because I had read in that same book by Stephen LeBurge, you know, not just skateboarding and, and having sex with movie stars, but you can actually use lucid dreaming to work with PTSD nightmares. Um, so I started taking the lucid dreaming. It's also what led me there too. Oh, cool. That's also, that's also how I ended up here. That's the way in man. No mud, no Lotus. I mean, when you drugs, drugs and drugs, trauma, nightmares, and uh, (laughs) and then voila, lucid dreaming somewhere down the line. That's it. You know, dude, I used to live in a Buddhist end of like eight years and a couple of years into living there, I was sitting at the kitchen table with a couple of the monks. And one of the monks asked me how I got into Buddhism and I told him I had this NDE and did loads of drugs. Um, and then I said, um, I think probably quite a lot of people get into um, into Buddhism and Dharma through psychedelics, don't you think? And the monk looked at me and said, no, Charlie, how can you say that? And I was like, oh, shit, sorry. And he went, it's way more than that. It's one in two people get into Buddhism through psychedelics. I'm one of them and you're the other. <laughs> <laughs> He was like, yeah, man, 50% of people who get into Dharma, you find your way through the mishaps of psychedelics or not even the mishaps. You can have a brilliant psychedelic experience. But I think things, psychedelic experiences of which I would class lucid dreaming as one, expand the mind to such a point where you realize there's got to be more than this. And who are the people who are talking about the more than this of life? The Buddhists are a, a pretty good group to look at as well as other, you know, spiritual affiliations. Um, Anyway, yeah, so I got into, into Tibetan Buddhism and, and Tibetan Buddhism more specifically uh, with the dream yoga and uh, which is essentially uh, staying conscious through all of the stages of of being, which is, you know, regular everyday wakefulness, the hypnagogic states, which uh, some of my listeners may be familiar with, and then hypnopompic states and then the deep sleeping. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Claire the other day, uh, Claire Johnson, uh, and uh, she was talking about how she had been able to stay conscious through like entire processes through through sleep, like through the entire going to sleep in, in, in the lucid dream through the whole night. And then there's moments where everything goes dark. If you've lucid dream enough, I think people have reached this point where, you know, they're dreaming and then they lose the dream, but they're still asleep and everything's just dark and they're just kind of like in the void for a while uh, until you could use your... Uh, until you could use your until your imagination comes back in and the scene begins to form around you and I didn't quite know what to do with that space personally uh, I would feel disoriented and some part of my mind would say oh you're just lying in bed with your eyes closed you know and then I would open my eyes and I would be in a very different place than where than my room or sometimes I'd be in my room but it would be slightly different and not actually my room which maybe we'll go into into false awakenings uh, in a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, for me also, uh, psychedelics and, and weed, I guess you could say I started smoking weed very young. Uh, I think I was 13. I lived in a group home and, uh, maybe I wasn't even 13. Maybe I was 12. I don't know. I was really young and, uh, drinking when I was maybe nine or 10 and smoking cigarettes and stuff. So, uh, I noticed that for me, those parts of my life were actually the most interesting, like being drunk or being high was like, oh, gosh, okay, well, this is, you know, a lot, a lot more beautiful than kind of the world that was presented to me otherwise. And I was, you know, I was living in the projects and stuff. So things were kind of crazy. Uh, Definitely, you know, 
I mean, I guess even in the craziness, it, it lost its interest. It was the, kind of the same madness going on. But I could imagine that a lot of people that eventually find themselves at Lucid Dreaming maybe had s- started off uh, through this whole psychedelic realm and through this wanting to escape uh, and, uh, and go somewhere where, I guess, somewhere that's you know, more beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I, I partially agree. But the fact that the, the shadow shows up so readily in our first few lucid dreams means it's not always that beautiful. So if you want to, if you want, yeah, fairies and rainbows, lucid dreaming probably isn't the best place to go because very soon your shadow is going to pop up and be like, ah, you're here. You're finally conscious in the unconscious. Let me bring all this shit. Daddy issues, spirituality issues, sex issues, you know, self-worth issues. So yes, I agree. But at the same time, when people ask, like, could you, lucid dreaming be used for escapism? My kind of answer is, I kind of wish it could. I wish all lucid dreams were kind of lovely and escapist rather than just really, than the often kind of really intense shadow um, experiences they are. But yes, absolutely, I agree that the psychedelics is a way in for many people. And of course, lucid dreaming is a brilliant psychedelic experience you can have for free and is good for you. You know, there's no, there's no contraindications. As of yet. And it builds on and it builds on itself too is something that I've realized. The more you work with it, it's a practice as opposed to uh, something that comes in from the outside. It's a it's it's a, yeah. essentially a spiritual practice, and that's really what it, why I wanted to bring you on the show is that uh, I like that you speak about lucid dreaming as as your spiritual practice. And for Tibetan Buddhists that practice dream yoga, I mean, this is the core of their spiritual practice. And uh, it's a lot, it reminds me of what little I know of the Australian Aboriginals that talk about dream time, where, mm-hmm. you know, the waking, the waking life is actually viewed of, viewed as a dream also. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe you want to touch on that. Um, how is the this waking life, the, the life we're in right now? Let me dream test for a second, plug my nose here and see if I could breathe. You see. I'll do a finger. Nope. Yeah, okay, not, we're, we're, we're I don't, in the shared reality. I think we're we're in the yeah shared reality, and a lot of people have different names for for this reality. I've heard people call it. Uh, my psychologist that I've been working with for some time calls it the dense reality. I've heard Claire refer to it as waking reality, and then I like that you've called it shared reality. I mean, we're we're so at the cusp uh, for like the English language of what to call these aspects of this is really the uh, untrodden you know, part of consciousness, this place where our shared, shared reality or our waking reality is present in our entire, in the sea of our unconscious. But I wanted to, I I think I digressed, let me digress here a little bit and say, what is it, uh, uh, how is this waking reality like a dream? Because I remember reading this in, in dream yoga. Yeah. So from the Buddhist point of view, what we see to, what we believe to be objectively existing um, reality is in fact more like a shared dream experience that we are collectively co-projecting into existence. So it's not that it doesn't exist, it's that this reality is both the expression of form and emptiness. So often the, the lucid dream itself is used to explain reality and reality is used to explain the lucid dream. So in a lucid dream, there seems to be form because we can go around and touch stuff, right? And things feel solid and you can knock on a wall in a lucid dream. And it, it feels solid, it makes the noise of something solid. So we can't say it's without form, it's with form. 
but we say that form is empty of inherent existence. So it's pure potentiality. In fact, that's probably a better translation of shunyata of emptiness than, than the term emptiness. So it's got form and emptiness. Now, apparently, this reality is the same as that too. You say, well, no, this, this waking reality has to be real because look, it's solid. And then the counter argument is, well, only as solid as a lucid dream. In a lucid dream, you can also tap on a table. You can also do this. So the theory is that this is similar to a dream. It's not, we're literally in a dream and one day we'll wake up and it's all been like Dallas, you know, it's like, oh, it was all a dream. But that we, what we think to be objective reality is closer to a shared dream-like experience as in our minds are projecting this reality live and that with our minds, we can kind of co-create the way the dream goes. And in fact, in Tibetan, the dream of the nighttime is basically kind of referred to as, as the secondary dream because the primary dream is the waking state and the secondary dream is the dreams we have at nighttime. So that would be a dream within a dream. And essentially it said, if you can train to wake up within the dream, within the dream, as in wake up in your nighttime dreams, you're creating a capacity, a habit of mind that, that sees through illusion. And if you do that enough, you might generate the capacity that allows you to see through the illusion of the waking state. And that would move into this idea of kind of lucid living and full lucid living, like full awakening to this dream would be Buddhahood. And there's that famous kind of, you know, thing where Buddha was, when he reached full enlightenment and somebody asked him, you know, who are you? Are you a God? Are you an angel? Are you a magician? And he said, no, I'm awake. You know, that's God wasn't, uh, sorry, Buddha, <laughs> Buddha wasn't a God or anything. Buddha was a, a man who woke up, woke up to what, from what? Woke up to oneness and non-duality, woke up from dualistic ignorance, believing that this thing is, is real and we're all separate. So that's a theory, man. I mean, I have zero like recognition of this state, right? I'm a spiritual idiot, but I can see how the lucid dream can, can, has led me to, to understand it a tiny bit more, a teeny bit more, maybe on like a handful of occasions for like a split second. I've had a moment of, oh shit, I get what they're talking about. And then of course I slip back into my deluded sleep. But those split seconds have been enough for me to know it's real and to keep on doing this training because, you know, maybe it's just a critical mass. You're on 500 lucid dreams, 600 lucid dreams, then you have 601, boom. And then the next day you wake up and you can suddenly see through illusion. Maybe, uh, that's what I'm banking on anyway. <laughs> I have no idea whether there's mm -hmm. any. I think it's important too. I think that's so important. I like that you shared that and that you were, that you're honest about your experience that you're having right now. And I mean, uh, my lucid dreamings have kind of alternated, you know, I, I, it took me a long time. I, 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 I vaguely remembered thinking that potentially I had a lucid dream or had lucid dreams when I was a kid, but my childhood was so chaotic that I, you know, that I, I have a hard time understanding like what happened, what didn't happen or how it happened. I have very little memories. Like I don't, it's, it's hard for me to really differentiate between like, like, dream and reality uh growing up because i didn't really have any constancy like i wasn't living in like the same place i was living in this house and that house and with these people and then i'm in a group home and then i'm over here and then i'm staying on these people's couch you know so uh for me it was really difficult for me to remember you know many dreams that i had when i was a kid and i think that a lot of people maybe they hear lucid dreaming and they go well shit i don't know if like i could lucid dream i can't even remember my dreams and and maybe the first part place to start is you know, remembering your dreams. And, and also when I started to begin having lucid dreams, I started to think negatively about regular dreams. Like I'd have four vivid dreams in one night or six even. And I'm like, damn it, none of them. How did I not become lucid? You know, and I turned it into this process of where I was, you know, you know, 
disappointed unless there was a lucid dream. And then even got to the point where if it was a lucid dream and I lost lucidity, like relatively quickly, I was still disappointed. So I found myself waking up kind of disappointed, you know, and, you know, waking up, going to record, going to record a dream and then being like, ah, whatever, that it wasn't a lucid dream. So why even record it? And then forgetting it. And I think that I want to point towards and hear your opinion on, you know, just really creating the bridge. I look at the whole dream world as like, you know, the Greeks believe that the, you know, that you're born with a diamond and the diamond lives in this, you know, mythic time or, you know, it, it lives in a, uh, it's, it is you, it's your soul and it lives in, uh, in this reality that you could come into contact within dreams. And how do we create a friendly nature with this entire world, with, you know, what you, what some may, maybe some people don't feel as passionate when they hear it called the unconscious, you know, the unconscious kind of seems kind of sterile. You picture like a, at least I do, I picture, you know, some, some, some man or woman in an office somewhere and it's like, okay, focus on your unconscious, you know, but like I picture this, this world of the dreams. It's this like vibrant living, sometimes like nightmarish scape, but sometimes beautiful and you know, just well, you know, you can meet your unconscious. Go into your lucid dream and ask to meet them, and they'll appear. And you'll have a that's a brilliant dream plan, man. I'd love to know kind of what your unconscious looks like compared to what mine looks like compared to what whoever looks like. That, have that as your dream plan. I actually asked my. I became lucid in a dream, and I said, "I I want to meet my soul," you know, and uh, Ooh, so so maybe that was what I meant by unconscious. I don't know, but I said I want to meet my soul, and I was very fascinated and. Uh, and all of a sudden, I see a puppy dog, uh, and uh, and and it's and it's looking at me, and and I'm looking at the puppy dog, and I'm like, man, this isn't my soul. That was like the first thing I was. I felt like disappointed in the the fact that it was this puppy dog. And all of a sudden, like the puppy dog fell into the depths of the water, like the water just like pulled the puppy dog under, and I'm like, I want to meet my soul. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, I saw a woman, and she had really long dark hair. And she turns and like I, I felt like, gosh, this isn't my soul. Like this is a woman. Like I'm a man. That's, this can't be my soul. I don't know why I thought that this in the dream, you know, because I was consciously aware that I was dreaming and asking for this. And she turns around, walks away, gets on an elevator and, and, and goes up. So uh, I had the dog go down. The woman goes up and I'm like, I want to meet my soul. And all of a sudden I, I see my my partner who I'm with now, Madeline. And I and I go, are you my soul? And she was just one of like the zombie characters. She was just like, you know, I'm like, what? What the heck? And so like, I'm running with her through buildings and things. And uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I go with puppy dog, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Like, what? What better symbol of that? Like the puppy. Like if I, I mean, I've got a puppy sleeping on the sofa just there. If I think a puppy, I if it were my dream, if I think a puppy. I think of innocence. I think of friendliness. I think of love. I think of kind of playfulness. I think of potential. I think those are some pretty good descriptors of the soul, man. So it could have been that you met your soul. Who knows? But the cool thing is, dreaming, you can go back. And you know, I didn't even, I didn't even know this at the time. I didn't even know this at the time. But uh, apparently, in Greece, uh, there was a Greek god called Asclepius. Are you familiar with Asclepius? Yeah. So Asclepius is actually like the founder, essentially the, the roots of modern medicine of the Hippocratic Oath is founded in Asclepian dream healing. And he, his, uh, uh, Hippocrates, his father was actually a, an Asclepian priest and people would go and they would, you know, fast and go through ritual and ceremony. And then they would go, 
uh, ask us to, for a healing dream where Asclepius would come to them uh, and help them heal. And one of the, uh, one of the, what he would like, a, it was like a shamanic healing of, of this kind. And one of the forms I found out much later after this dream uh, that Asclepius comes in is a dog. Uh, and that's one of his animals is a dog and a snake and a cock. Uh, so those are, those are his three kind of, I don't know if you'd call it totem animals. And so I found that fascinating after the fact, like had I known that when it happened, I think I would have been more fascinated. I actually ended up in an old growth forest here in Hawaii. And it was a day where I was feeling really, really lost at what to do and like what my calling was here and what the heck I'm supposed to do with 86 acres and all the different projects I have going on and feeling a lot like how I heard you mention in your book, Dreams of Awakening, where you said, you know, you'll go through dry spells where you won't have lucid dreams for a while and you'll go like, shit, I'm teaching lucid dreaming. I'm not having any lucid dreams right now. Am I a fraud? Why? This is one of those days where I'm like, am I a fraud? Like, I don't know how to really like do permaculture that well, you know, I mean, well, I mean, on a scale of one to a hundred, maybe like a three, you know, and uh, I'm not a builder, you know, I'm not any of these things, you know, I don't DJ and I'm, we're running dances here. And I'm like, am I a fraud? Like, what is this? And I said a prayer, like this is in waking or our shared, shared consciousness. And I said a prayer to the old growth forest. And I said, you know, I, you know, I, I need help. I'm lost. I don't, I, I, I like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what to do. I, I think maybe I'm a fraud. Here I am in Hawaii. Like I'm not Hawaiian, you know, like I, I don't know why I'm here, but I don't really have anywhere else to be. So here I am. I said, like, I, you know, if you could communicate with me in some way, I would really greatly appreciate it. I don't really know how to like pray effectively. I'm just doing the best I can. So I'm just like rambling kind of how I am with you right now in this forest. And then at the minute I stop, I hear a rustling in the in the uh, in the grasses because it's like all this like it looks like fern gully or something. And out of nowhere appears this dog that looks identical to the dog I had in this dream when I asked to meet my soul. And it's a and it has like like this like it's been starved and it's got like this cable coming off of it and it hasn't and and I didn't know it was a girl but she like had been starved and was flea infested and had cuts all over basically abandoned in this old growth forest it looks like some type of hunting dog and so I'm like talking to the dog and it's following me kind of like Schmeagle in Lord of the Rings you know it's just like and I'm with my dog so you know it's following the she is following me you know down the down the path follows me for maybe five or ten minutes. And I'm like, well, I can't just take every dog that I find, like, you know. And so I'm talking to the dog and I'm like, I'm not going to like grab you and carry you 20 to 30 minutes through this thing. And I said, if you if I'm supposed to rescue you somehow or you're supposed to come with me, you need to follow me to my car and get into my car. I'm just talking to this dog as though this dog is a person, you know. And so, I don't know, a minute later, the dog disappears into the old growth forest. And I'm like, okay, well, I feel relieved because I don't know what the hell I'd do with another dog. I've got enough issues, you know. And so... Maybe 15 minutes later, I get to the car and guess who is standing right next to my car? There's the dog. It like knew that there was my car. I open the door, dog gets in and uh, now we have uh, another dog. So uh, it's interesting how the dream world has this premonition. And I want to know if you have had these experiences where in your dreams that it's given you some insight of things to come or have helped you in your decision-making process. Yes, but just before that, I want to answer two questions that you asked me and then I never answered. Oh, um, shit, okay. I do asked, that sometimes. No, no, that's cool. It's just because we're flowing, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. Um, it was about the uh, the very natural 
habit of seeing lucid dreams as better than non-lucid dreams and something cool that uh, just a cool kind of thing that will stay in your head a good way to remember it even if you manage to get lucid every night of the week so set so like seven lucid dreams uh, a week right which i can't do so if you can do that please tell me how to do that but seven lucid dreams a week still based on the amount of dream periods you have and the amount of dreams within each dream period five dream periods a night based on eight hour sleep cycle you have hundred like dozens of dreams a, a, a week right so even if you have a lucid dream every night, 95% of your dream experience will be non-lucid. So if we get to the stage where we're thinking that like lucid dreams are the best and non-lucid dreams are worthless, we're basically discounting 95% of our experience. Now, if you look at most solid lucid dreamers, if they're hitting maybe just one lucid dream a week, which is still brilliant, you know, 50, 60 lucid dreams a year, that's great. Um, that means like, you know, 97, 98% of our experience is non-lucid. So if we get into the mindset of like lucid dreams are the best, non-lucids uh, are worthless, we're discounting like 98% of our experience. So just like you, I'm really into exploring the whole of dreams. And if you ask me my top five dream experiences of all time, yeah, number one is a lucid dream, but I'd say maybe two, three, and four are non-lucid dreams. They were dreams where the impact, the, the, the message from the dreamer was so big, so profound, it almost wouldn't let me get lucid. It was if the dreamer was like, shh, shh, Charlie, Charlie, just sit in the corner. <laughs> You're going to fuck this up. <laughs> okay, don't fuck this up. Just here's the message. So, so yeah, just something like that for, for people to think, oh, but I can't lucid dream. Lucid dreaming is not the only way into dream work. It is a very direct way to communicate with the daemon, like you said, or the higher self, whatever you want to call it, but it's not the only way. That aspect is communicating with us through every dream. And another thing you said about writing down your dreams, when people tell me, you know, oh, I don't write down my dreams because they're so boring. My reply is always, your dreams are so boring because you don't write them down. If you take time to diarize your dreams, to talk about your dreams, to pay homage to your dreams, that daemon, that higher self, that dreamer with a capital D, whatever you want to call it, that is making the dreams is going to respond. I've seen people go from like, totally boring, you know, frac uh, fractal, uh, sorry, fractal, uh, little um, uh, fragments of dreaming to within one week of keeping a dream diary, suddenly they're having epic dreams about childhood trauma and all this, you know, heavy stuff, but it's coming to them. So because the dream is responding, it's saying, oh, dude, now you're writing down my dreams. Now you're listening to them. Let me give you some biggies. And like you said, with the synchronicity, that's going to happen there too. You know, the dreamer knows that like, okay, this guy's on the lookout, you know, he's, that's looking at, at this state as a dream too, as well as his, his nighttime dream. So we can start to work with that, that synchronicity. Of course, a term invented by, by Carl Jung, which is super cool. Um, apparently he invented the term when he was talking about someone was, actually, let me get the story right. Yes, a client was telling him a dream about in the dream, he met a scarab beetle. And then at that moment, something hit the window and it was a scarab beetle. And he was like, there's got to be a word to explain a kind of meaningful, significant coincidence like that. And this is how we kind of came up with this term, or at least pioneered that term synchronicity. So I think your synchronicities will increase once you start dream work, because the dreamer is working with this. Because from the Buddhist point of view, remember, this is a dream too. The dreamer is, is acting here. So we can start to literally like live the life of our dreams if we start doing dream work, apparently. I love that story of the scarab with Carl Jung. He, uh, in the moment, it was this really square woman. I ended up researching the hell out of this because I felt I walked up to a restaurant about a month ago and I saw this couple who I'd sworn that I'd seen before. Like, I'm like, gosh, I know them from somewhere. And, uh, and I was like, gosh, I feel like I should talk to them. And, uh, 
And so I walk up and I start talking to them and then we invite them to ecstatic dance. Uh, and as, as I'm talking to him, I notice that he has a picture of a scarab pushing the moon up. And I'm like, gosh, that looks familiar. I think I've seen Yeah. And I'm like, I think I've seen that somewhere. And I don't, and I like ask him about it briefly. And he talks about like Egyptian language and how the Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, you know, it's not a, like a phonetic type of language. It's symbol. So there's a living meaning. Essentially, it's a representation of a living meaning of a, of a, of a moment of time that essentially creates a portal back into that time if you are able to really read it. And so super fascinating conversation that we, that we have about it. And uh, we end up talking for like 20 minutes while we wait for our food. And then we invite them to come to our play. They end up being musicians to play music at our ecstatic dance that we were having that Sunday. This is about three weeks ago, maybe. And uh, we leave there. We go, I don't know, uh, 10 miles down the road, hike down this crazy thing. We're down at this like beach. You know, this is hours and hours later. And uh, all of a sudden, we run into this same couple. There's not anybody else down there. There's maybe like six other people. We run into the same couple again. It's like, this is so wild that we run into to you again. And, and, uh, and what a synchronicity. Or he says that. What a synchronicity. Then he starts telling me about uh, uh, what he, uh, he didn't know have a word for it, but he had a dream where he was awake watching himself dreaming that night before. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I just I've had the weirdest you know, day so far. I woke up in this strange place. And then now we've just run into each other again. And then, and, I'm, and, he, and he goes, yeah, it's a synchronicity. I'm like, yeah, it's so weird. Synchronicity. That make, reminds me of something like Carl Jung talked about a beetle, a scarab. And I'm like, holy shit, that's the scarab on your throat. And he'd never heard that story. So then I tell him about this story. And then he tells me about the fact that he was trying to, there was rats on his roof. And he was trying to figure out a way to get rats. This is actual real rats in in a in shared reality on his roof and uh, where he was staying. And he's like, "How do I get rid of these rats? They're keeping me awake. They're running across the roof." And they're like, "You have to poison them." But he's like, "But if I the landlord tells him you have to poison them, he's like, I don't want to poison them." He goes, "Well, as your landlord, I told you I would take care of them by poisoning them. But here's the poison. If you don't want to use it, you can't complain." And he's like, "Shit, I don't know what to do." And he's like looking, and everything's like set mouse traps and drown them and poison them and and he's like ah he's a vegan so he's like i don't want to i don't want to do that like i want to be compassionate he's like he he became lost at what to do so he said well you know what i'm going to just ask my dream it was an insight he had in the moment i'm going to ask my dream what to do this was like a week or two before we had met and so he went to sleep and in the dream like a character came to him he's very lucky i guess or blessed to have a character come up and just goes okay you ready for this you're going to remember this i'm going to tell you what to do to get rid of these rats so the character tells him in the dream all right you want to plant mint everywhere you want to get mint toothpaste and put it around the tree and then you want to put foil put mint underneath the foil and then you want to cut the you know the branches off the tree so like there's not so much covering because if there's too much covering rats really like covering and uh, and he's like oh okay so then he wakes up and he tells his friend that uh, this Mexican guy that's living there, because he's also Mexican. I think he's Mexican. He's, I think I'm pretty sure. And uh, and the guy's like, you know, I would I would normally I don't know if I'm butchering the Mexican accent, but it's more entertaining, at least if I try. It, you know, I would normally say I would not help you with this, you know, but, you know, you're my friend and, you know, you come from the same place. So whatever. The rats will probably like it even better. You know, they come up and they, oh, I eat some mints. I, you know, I climb the tree and. Uh, uh, so anyways, he does it. And at first the rats are even on his roof more. And then a couple of days later, it's gone and they never return. And then, uh, 
And then he looked it up. He's like, well, why is it that they would do that? And apparently rats, they're, they're, they're just so programmed to predators that when it's clear, and they hate mint also. So they hate mint and they're programmed towards predators. That so is a thing. That is a thing. And then the foil keeps them from being able to climb up very easily. So it was like three different deterrents and the rats just went elsewhere. So it actually worked. Yeah. And then come to find out the guy grew up. Here we are in the middle of the, uh, of the Pacific Ocean. And the guy grew up, uh, you know, drinking all the time, which I did too. Like I, I, people used to call me Alki when I was a kid. And he grew up like 30 minutes away from where I live in, where I grew up in California. Also in the hood, like just super weird. Again, so many synchronicities. And what I find is the more I engage with this dream world, the more these dream type of synchronicities begin to happen. It's totally unexplainable. Yes. Just like when you write a dream and you pay homage to the dreamer, Every time you ignore a synchronicity, you ign- you're ignoring the dreamer. It's like, that's why you have people who have, like yourself, who have loads of synchronicities. And you say, why is it my mate Zach has all these synchronicities? Because Zach like pays homage to them. When he has one, he tells his friends about them. He mentions them on his podcast. He, you know, he's acknowledging that dreamer, that, 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 that co-creator. So the co-creator, oh, Zach, he's on point. So I'm going to give him more synchronicities. And that's why you find some people who have, or I believe, that's why you find some people who have loads of synchronistic events happening in the life and other people who are like, no, nah, that never happens to me, man. You know, maybe it's the same with kind of good and bad luck, which I don't believe in, but, um, I think there can, you know, there's some link to that as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people will discount lucid dreams. I mean, until what was it? 1975, uh, there, it, people thought that, you know, the normal traditional Western medical establishment just said, Oh, you know, lucid dreams are not real. You just think you were aware in your dream. You were dreaming that you were aware in your dream. You weren't actually. And then finally it was Keith Hearn, I believe that was in 1975. And, uh, and this is a big deal. And I hear people hear this and they're like, eh, whatever, you know, but it's like, no, think about this. Like someone is in their dream. Like it's like the matrix, you know, it's like they're in the matrix and they know that their body is asleep next to their girlfriend or in a sleep laboratory. And they're like, okay, I'm going to communicate with people in the other reality as I'm like, as I'm like a dolphin swimming, I'm a dolphin swimming through the ocean and communicating (laughs) as a dolphin with someone that is standing next to my sleeping body, you know, in the, you know, shared matrix waking world. I mean, that's fucking, that's like shamanic shit, you know? How is it blowing people's minds? Yeah, like, how is it? Dude, you just reminded me. In, I did an interview with a, a researcher uh, last week for the summit, and I was asking her, you know, what's some cool lucid dreaming research coming up? And she said, oh, you remember the original way they proved lucid dreaming with the eye flicking, which you've just mentioned, where the lucid dreamer, when they became lucid, they communicated with the sleep laboratory by flicking their eyes, like left, right, left, right, kind of like a Morse code that proved I'm conscious in here, and I know you're out there, and I'm communicating with you. Okay, they're doing similar studies now, but this is super fucking cool. They have managed to um, get sound to enter the lucid dream. So I'm sure you've seen this like in Matrix, not in Matrix, in, uh, in Inception when they play Je ne regret rien uh, and through the headphones and the music comes to the dream and that lets them know to leave the dream. And we know that sound can enter dreams when the alarm clock you know, enters into your dream when you wake up in the morning and stuff. So basically they found a way to communicate to someone in a lucid dream verbally 
And what they're communicating is they're getting to tests in the lucid dream. So the person gets lucid, flicks their eyes to let them know I'm in here because normal rapid eye movements all over the place. Once you're lucid, you can go chung, 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 up, down, your Morse code saying I'm here. Then through the headphones, they're saying, okay, what's six plus two? And then the person's in the dream, they hear like the voice of God, what's six plus two? They hear the outside world. They then do the math and they flick eight times. Eight, 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 like that to show eight. And even things like when they get it wrong and one person, oh no, I, I said nine, I meant eight. They then do a circle to go like, no, no, scrap that and then flick again, eight. I mean, full communication. Now imagine when they've finished these, because this, this hasn't been peer reviewed yet. This is brand new studies that are happening now. I was instantly jumping to it. Imagine a time where you have a therapist, you have someone with deep PTSD, major trauma, they get loose in the dream. You have the therapist through the headphones saying, okay, it's Dr. Whoever here. I'm your therapist. You're safe. You're in a lucid dream. I want you to call out for your shadow. I want you to embrace your trauma. I want you to go back to, to that scene in Iraq, but know that you're safe. I'm here. You're in a dream. Dude, I was like- Have you seen The Cell? Have you seen The Cell with Jennifer Lopez? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember that. And she's like yeah. in the different mind states. Yeah, exactly. She goes into his mind. She essentially goes yeah. into his unconscious. It's kind of like that. Have you ever taken yeah. a boga, ibogaine? No. The uh, root from Africa? No. So it's interesting because iboga, it's a root from Africa. And it's actually what started me. You ask what started, I think, all right, maybe you didn't even ask. I, I tend to volunteer information, maybe more than even I should. Uh is that Iboga is also known as like the drug to end all drugs. You know, I was addicted to opiates, I was addicted to alcohol, I was addicted to cigarettes, I was addicted to benzos. I was like basically anything that like would calm my tra trauma response. It wasn't that I was addicted because I was, for me, I wasn't even trying to escape. I was trying to survive. I'm like, I couldn't do basic things. Like I couldn't like read sentences from beginning to end without like feeling like I should be doing something else. Like I was just in a constant state of panic, panic attacks, going to the hospital, you know, running up, you know, tons of credit, them thinking I'm on drugs when I'm not, and I'm just having panic attacks. But anyways, a boga uh, isn't actually a psychedelic. It's what's called an onerogen, which is a dream maker. And I think what it does, and I don't know exactly, and there's not a lot of research into a boga, and I'm not suggesting everybody runs out and gets a boga. As a matter of fact, that's the interest I have in lucid dreams is because the iboga experience and the lucid dream experience are so alike. Uh, you take this you take this route from Africa. I mean, it makes you totally disoriented. It basically puts you in a state of sleep paralysis where it's almost impossible to move. Like you can, but just barely and it's just so nauseating and I think it takes you close to death but uh, initially you start to see hypnagogic images even with your eyes open so your eyes will be open and you'll see Darth Vader coming out of the wall you'll see Fozzie the bear mowing the lawn upside of the wall uh, you'll see like an avatar walk through the room if somebody walks in they'll look like a gorilla I mean I mean it is whole next level like dream world is entering in this world uh, and then you close your eyes and then you're in a full-fledged lucid dream uh, and aware that you're dreaming, although some people forget that they're dreaming and then they go into a nightmare and it's, you know, it's, it's quite frightening and you can't stop it. You know, I think what's so beautiful about uh, a therapist going in and like being the voice and like, hey, what do you see there and communicating back and forth is it reminds me of uh, the, I don't know if you've seen the French movie, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Have you yeah. seen that? Yeah, I read the book. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's in essentially he's locked in his body. 
and he's you know communicating out from that world and the only thing he has is that little bit of movement and i picture you know somebody in the dream world being able to communicate and i hadn't heard of this study uh by the way charlie i'm, I'm i don't know how new it is but i hadn't heard they're right she literally talks about it in the summit and we have like my, my live reaction of going like whoa I've never heard of that. And it's super cool. Like there's some really cool lucid dreaming studies coming out next year. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. I was uh, super fascinated point. by the, uh, uh, the uh, electrodes on the, I guess that happened in what, 2014, like 40 Hertz. Oh, and, the electrical stimulation mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. 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 I had like 70% success rate. And, and I know that you have a lucid dream summit. I think this may be a good time to talk about it because you had mentioned you heard about this on one of, from one of your guests on the lucid dream summit. Uh, what are, what are some of the things that are going to be covered in the lucid dream summit? Cause this is maybe this podcast is kind of like a preview, uh, for some of the things that's coming up in this, uh, lucid dream summit that everybody can attend for free. Uh, if they want to like keep the material, they can, but, uh, it's available. There's no paywall to experience it yeah no it's free for the four days of the summit and it's um basically what i wanted to do is there had been these dream summits before talking about lucid dreaming but usually it's an interviewer who doesn't know about lucid dreaming interviewing lucid dreaming teachers and i thought okay what about if me as the lucid dreaming teacher interview people who who primarily aren't lucid dreaming teachers about lucid dreaming so it's me interviewing like shamans philosophers buddhist lamas scientists psychiatrists about the potential of lucid dreaming um, there are a few lucid dreaming teachers, but the vast majority of people are kind of, uh, you know, wider spectrum practitioners. And we got some super cool interviews, man, like really, really cool content. And yeah, it's all for free. You can watch it. If you want to buy it, you can, but mainly it's free. Um, and yeah, one of the interviews is with this lady, Michelle Carr. She's a, uh, researcher at Rochester university in, uh, I guess, New York state. And I worked with her on a project at Swansea university in the UK. Uh, using a dream yoga modality for nightmare treatment. So I kind of wrote the script that people were using in the sleep lab and we had some really good results with that. Um, yeah, so it's um, there's some great interviews there. One with Andrew Holacek, uh, who's a Buddhist teacher, where we look at lucid dreaming as a uh, practice for death and dying. Great one with my friend Sergio Magana, who is a uh, Toltec Mexica, Mexican shaman. And we talk about the dream traditions that go back at least a thousand years in that tradition. Um, we in, oh God, I interview my teacher, my guru, which is like the most nerve wracking thing of my life. Well, not nerve wracking, but I just, I'm just embarrassed. I like, didn't think he'd say yes, but because of lockdown, he was like, okay, I'll say yes. And I was like, oh God, don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid. And actually I do say something stupid and I get told off by him at the end, which is kind of embarrassing too. <laughs> but yeah, just loads of cool interviews, like 20 hours of footage, loads of cool stuff of people talking about lucid dreaming and the borders of consciousness. Oh, really go on with this philosopher called Tim Freak, where we talk about, he meant he, he Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. He's super, he's, he's written more books than years of my life, man. He's written like 37 books and he's a real philosopher. And we talk about lucid dreaming as an, uh, an evolutionary tool for consciousness, which is really interesting. And he actually wrote a book called lucid living where he uses the, uh, kind of metaphor of the lucid dream state to explain, uh, waking up in this state. Uh, yeah, so maybe we can put the link below the podcast or something. But if you just go, if you Google or, or search "lucid dreaming online summit," it'll come up. Great, awesome. I know I talked to uh, Mahil, who runs the Jung Jung platform and uh, uh, Jung Society of Utah, and I was like, "Hey, did you hear about this lucid dream summit?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, I'm already registered. I'm already going to that." So, so oh, that's cool. cool. Oh, that's it's nice it's spreading out there, and people are definitely hearing about it. And I uh, oh, and Claire's on it. Claire Johnson, mm, who you've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just did a. Uh, uh, she we got actually Claire's. Is- Go ahead. What were you saying? It's a really good interview. 
that's just that one of my favorites is with Claire, actually, Dr. Claire Johnson. Yeah, we have a really good interview. Yeah, I think Claire is, uh, I mean, she's one of these prolific lucid dreamers. Um, uh, I, I listened to her uh, audio book. She needs to narrate. I mean, this is my opinion, but I think it would be lovely with her voice if she narrated all the rest of her books. As, I don't know if anyone's written more about lucid dreaming than her, I found out, kind of. She's written all of these books on lucid dreaming, and none. I, I listen to most. I like audio books. She's done a PhD. She's one of the first to do a PhD on lucid dreaming. Yeah. You know, she's been doing her thing for a long time, and she's a practitioner. She's not just a theorist. You know, there are people who write books, but they're not actually practitioners. Like Claire Johnson is a serious lucid dreaming practitioner as well as a serious kind of theorist and writer on it, and that's very rare. To get so she's yeah she's I've got very great great respect for Claire. When I was listening to her audiobook, I uh, I had three lucid I had lucid dreams three nights in a row, and uh, and I'm like wow, wow this is so wild. And then I and then of course I stopped listening to it immediately because that was just working too well. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm halfway kidding, although like you know it's like you know there's there's you listen like when I when you engage with something and it's working so often we stop it. Cause we're like, Oh, like it's just like almost too easy. I need to go out and find this really obscure thing, you know? And so I, I, I was like, and in a, in a dry spell, it'd been a couple weeks since I had a lucid dream. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to, you know, maybe I'll listen to that Claire Johnson's book again, you know? And so I put it on and then I had the most profound lucid dream of my life. Like the first night after I was listening to it, I mean, just, so profound put that into an amazon review that'll bring her so much joy man because that's just the perfect review for a book what you just you know I, I i wrote her an unbelievable amazon book review on audible and it like won't it won't populate it like won't populate on audible i i have this like glitch nature around me i go to do something and it's oh. like oh i didn't meet the algorithm you know like i interviewed too many things or I didn't review too many. I don't know. It's so, it's so funny. I told her about that. She's like, well, maybe write, maybe write another one. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll totally, <laughs> totally write another. I got, I need to write one for you. I rated it uh, the audio book. I like that you, uh, that you narrated it. Uh, every time I, at the end, I really enjoy narrating my book. By the end, I was like, I really enjoy it. And also I'd hear that sound and I'd go, Charlie says, Charlie says, <laughs> and I just it would get stuck in my head, you know. And uh, I remember uh, I, I read another book that right before I started. Uh, all right, sorry, I listened to another audio book right before uh, I started diving deep into lucid dreaming, uh, and it was uh, a, a, a book by a woman named Tokapa Turner. There, a book called Belonging. I don't know if you've ever read it, but she would say throughout the book. Tokapa's dream. And so for whatever reason, I just got these, you get these like memes. Like I had Charlie says, Charlie says, I can't even well, say you it. You know, the Charlie says thing, <laughs> the Charlie says thing is a reference to a really obscure British um, road safety advert no way. from the eighties that went, yeah, that had this like cartoon, uh, this cartoon of this little dog called Charlie. And the little boy would say, Charlie says, and then Charlie, the dog would say, you know, rough, rough, look left, look right. <laughs> don't cross the road at night. And, you know, I, I don't know, stuff like that about road safety. So it's a very obscure reference that only kind of British people of a certain age will get. But I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed you it. You know, I sensed <laughs> that there was something there. I'm like, why is he doing it like that? Like, why does he like, is yeah, he like trying to like says. program it into my mind? Like, what is this? I'd be walking through the <laughs> grocery store and it's like, it's all Charlie into my cult. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, with Charlie, we have a donkey here named Charlie. 
we have three donkeys, Juan, Julio, and Charlie. And, uh, and, and, I, and I tend to say Charlie with the British accent, you know, because I, I remember that, that, yeah, I remember that um, little YouTube video that's like, ouch, Charlie, Charlie bit me, and that really hurt Charlie, and it's still hurting. And so that's still... I love hearing Americans do British <laughs> accent. It's literally my favorite. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I want to know who, uh, what else you got topics going on on the summit, just because I feel like maybe we could end the podcast with going over some of the exciting things uh, that are going to be going on there. Yeah, man. Loads of cool stuff. Um, another cool one. What was some of my favorite? Oh, Yakov Darling Khan. He is a, a co-creator of something called Movement Medicine, which is not dissimilar to your ecstatic dance that you've been doing at your um, uh, at your retreat place at your at your abode. Um, so he co-created something called Movement Medicine, which is kind of like five rhythms, but with I I I, I jokingly call it five rhythms without a psychotherapy. Um, Because it's like the five rhythms process of ecstatic dance, but it goes really deep into shadow work and ancestral work. Um, But also he's a a shamanic um, practitioner and actually now uh, has been, you know, a a qualified shaman within several lineages. And they just wrote a book called Shaman. And in this uh, interview, we look at how dream work appears within different shamanic lineages and how lucid dreaming particularly plays a role within um, shamanic practice. And that's a really good one. I mean, I think that the best interviews are those where you meet someone like Claire Johnson, who's a practitioner as well as a theorist and who can talk about it. So I'm going to pick up my phone. Are we doing video or audio? Just audio. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, you can't see the puppy then. Okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but I want you to imagine a miniature sausage dog, whoever is listening, uh, called <laughs> Waffles. I'm out here licking my hand. Um, yeah, so the one with Jakob is super cool. Um, there's a great one with... Uh, um, oh, Robert Wagner, who's the like, who's the kind of lucid dreaming goat, you know, greatest of all time, in my in my humble opinion. Dude's been like on the scene, lucid dreaming for 40 years. He was the past president of the International Association of the Study of Dreams. He wrote the seminal lucid dreaming gateway to the self. Um, yeah, he's, again, a real practitioner. And his late, he talks about his latest book in the interview, which I hadn't heard of, which is all of the mystical stuff that the editors made him leave out of his first book, Lucid Dreaming Gateway to Himself. He's now reworked and is publishing that, the whole book. And I was oh shit, it's like Robert Wagner. It's like esoteric Wagner, um, which is, which is going to be awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, I can't wait. When does that come out? I don't know, actually. But again, it'll be in the interview somewhere. Um, oh, and then we've got a great interview with uh, Stanley, um, sorry, Stan, uh, Tracy Stanley, who's a yoga nidra teacher. Um, she's done brilliant work in the US. She actually taught breath work and, and meditation to Oprah. So she's like super, super cool. Uh, and she talks about lucid, uh, sorry, about yoga nidra as not only a gateway into the lucid dream state, but also as a deeply kind of healing tool for relaxation and, um, and bodily awareness. Because of course, it is possible to have lucid dreams without practicing yoga nidra. But if you practice yoga nidra in the conscious sleeping practices, it makes lucid dreaming a hell of a lot easier because you're training a very kind of similar muscle group. Yeah, what a, what a fascinating thing. Oh, and one more thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, man, I'm yeah, just no, excited no, no, about hey, yeah. I'll one more. This dude, Maxwell Hunter, this is one to look out for. Maxwell Hunter, young, young dude, maybe, God, 24, maybe 25 now, does brilliant stuff around trans awareness and mental health. And his big contribution he's made is that 
he's uh, got multiple personality disorder, or that's the label they've given him. He, he rejects the label, uh, not rejects the label, but I think he, he thinks it's more complex than that. He uses his lucid dreams to meet his multiple personalities, so to meet the voices in his head. And he meets them and dialogues with them and asks them, like, what do you want from me? Dialogues with them, embraces them, befriends them, and then there's a massive reduction in the negative effects the voices have over his life. I mean, that kid's doing stuff I have never heard anyone doing before. And if we can get studies of what he's doing, like psychiatric studies, that could change the face of psychiatry because you're using the lucid dream state to dialogue with the psychotic voices in your head. I mean, that interview is amazing. And just the kid's doing such brilliant stuff. He's, he's an inspiration. I'm super, super fascinated by this. I know that Helen Sidra Stone, the psychologist, wrote a book called Voice Dialogue, uh, where you bring in your different uh, voices uh, in you know, just waking reality. The challenge is, is that I also have, like not like audible voices, but I have you know, uh, counter pulls, you know, like, you know, complexes that pull me in each way. Like, it's like, oh, I'm doing this. You should be doing that. You should be doing this. And it's like really difficult to focus sometimes, like, because uh, you're getting pulled in so many different directions. I'm super fascinated to hear uh, uh, what he's worked with and, and how he's worked with that in the dream, because I hadn't considered meeting those complexes. Well, you, could you could meet those complexes in the yeah, dream. Yeah, you know, you'd think I would have considered that reading so many, so much Jungian text. I'm here out of like desperation. You know, that's how I ended up here, you know, kind of like, you know, addicted to opiates and I have to take a boga to get off the opiates and you're three days hallucinating. In the, in the boga journey, I, I meet a shaman that has my decapitated head in his hands, ripping the skin off my face. Yeah, I mean, and then, then I'm living in that's the... That's a brilliant image. Totally. I'm living in the wilderness after that. Then I travel to India and I'm there for seven months, but like not in India, like going to spiritual retreat centers, but like trying to earn money and like live on whatever little money I had left for as long as possible. So like this thing just like, it's like a, it's like a freaking hero's mythic journey or something, but less, less glamorous. That's it, man. You're <laughs> there with lots of boring lull. Dude, that image you had on the above of the, the guy holding your severed head. That's a, that's a deeply powerful image. I mean, I'm sure you know in all the what the what, what, what do you see? What do you see? In well, that? I instantly Buddhist Buddhistify it, don't I? And think it, look at it through through a Buddhist. No, that's great. But um, you know, there's like Vajrayogini, who's the kind of wrathful mother aspect, an aspect maybe similar to Kalima in the in the Vedic tradition, and um, she's pictured either holding the the heads, the severed heads of her uh, disciples, or wearing like a necklace of uh, the severed heads of her disciples, and that's of course that she severed their ego. Um, it's not about kind of deep worship or something, but it's 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 that she's, you know, because who are we when if I ask you to, like, imagine uh, your mom or your sister or something like that, you probably imagine their face. Right. You don't imagine their elbow or their knee because the face is synonymous with who we think we are, the head. Right. So that kind of image of chopping the head, that's kind of chopping the ego. So to have that in a psychedelic experience, man, I'd say that was a. Very beneficial. And did you say ripping the face off even? Ripping the, yeah, the, the shaman actually is an African shaman. In, and I felt like I was in Africa. I mean, there was like a, a campfire and people were dancing around. It's like a very, it was like a lucid dream. It, it wasn't like, it was a lucid dream. It felt as real as you and I talking here. I could feel the cold air blowing the wind. I, it was dusty. There wasn't any like trees or anything. It was like a kind of a dusty part of Africa. And the shaman falls from the sky. First, I don't even know what it is, you know, who it is or what it is. Boom, falls. I fall backwards 
I'm looking at my own decapitated head. It, I, my head's being held by the hair. And in like an African accent, but in English, the, sh- the shaman looks at me and has like all sorts of like, you know, the garb of a shaman, I guess. I don't know if that's what they wear. I mean, in some part, I think like I was actually there as, as strange as that sounds. And, uh, and he, he says, you've come to Africa. I'm probably butchering the accent. I can't really remember how it sounded, but you've come to Africa. You've, you've taken a boga. Now it's time to go beyond the blood. And he like pulls the peels the skin back of my of my face to where all I could see uh, is the meat behind and the bone behind the behind the face, which is kind of like the bone, I guess, is even more. Simple yeah. Than removing the moss. And, and you know, I, yeah. I didn't make that connection. It wasn't like I even understood. I, for me, the aboga journey was so intense and so deeply symbolic that I, you know, and I couldn't even make sense of it. I didn't have a guide like where I took it. There was no guide. I was by myself and, you know, maybe worse than by myself. It was just not responsibly done. But thankfully, the medicine doesn't care about that. It delivers the experience anyway. But it's taken me, you know, six years to really, you know, begin to unpack it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was profound. And I wasn't, you know, a lot of people may hear that and go, that's terrifying, or that sounds devilish. Or, you know, I could hear my fundamentalist Christian mother going, you know, what she said, oh, you take a boga, that's, you're like, you're climbing close to Satan, you know, and like all these things, you know. And for me, it wasn't, the the shaman wasn't, didn't have ill will towards me. You know, it seemed like the shaman really cared about me, which is counterintuitive to, you know, I mean, I still had my head. I mean, I was looking at the shaman with looking at my head, I was still there as my center of awareness, looking at my own face, looking back on me. So, uh, and I wasn't afraid either, which is, you would think I would be. It's not because I'm some, I'm usually afraid actually. I'm like, my general state is kind of like a mild anxiety. So uh, the fact that I wasn't afraid is, uh, is quite, quite fascinating if you think about it. Um, You know, there has been some interesting research I know from a UK lab in, uh, well, not Iboga, but Ibogaine, which is the kind of the active ingredient they've taken from that on on treatment for addictions. I mean, just as you said, and I've got a friend in in London, actually, he microdosed uh, Ibogaine. uh, No, sorry, he microdosed Iboga for like a month. And now he's fully off. I mean, he was on heroin substitute and now he's fully off that. Um, and he puts that all down to microdosing uh, iboga. So it's got, it seems to be even more so than ayahuasca. Iboga seems to be the one for people with uh, working with addiction. It seems to just completely reset. Um, so yeah, man, wow. Aho to that powerful experience of yours. Super powerful experience, yeah. And a lot of people are cured from opiate addiction and other addictions from it. I think that a lot of uh, drugs or, or, or medicines or whatever are used to mask emotions that we can't deal with Mo- behind every addict is a traumatized child for the most part That's uh, it, even you know, exactly you know gabor mate i heard somebody say like you know down every path eventually you run into the gaunt sullen face of gabor mate <laughs> you know like you can see it like it, it, wherever you go eventually there he is <laughs> so uh <laughs> yeah and dropping knowledge bombs man wherever you see him in my opinion totally is yeah and i mean he even used a, a buddhist term to describe uh the addictive yeah, personality the ad- yeah the hungry ghost yeah. in the realm of hungry ghosts if that doesn't depict what it feels like to be caught in addiction that you're just almost there but you can't get it you can't you can never really rest you're just ah uh, you're almost there but you're not there 
and you and you believe you can get there and it's that it's that whole addictive place and i think dream work is one of those i i mean aboga is the the name the it is what's an an onirogen sorry an onirophrenic it is a dream maker i mean it essentially is it forces you it's it i mean if there's ever been a blue pill red pill type of situation uh you know it is a red pill i mean it forces you into the lucid dream it pulls you into that unconscious and it keeps you there and uh yeah it's a you know and i think that maybe there's more gentle ways to have those deep initiatory experiences with lucid dream and and and, and you know i i while you were talking earlier about honoring the dream world a, a, a word kept coming to mind the idea of courtship you know i think a lot of people engage with dreams and they try to like strong arm their dreams come on i'm gonna like take these pills and make you dream or like come on dreams give me this i'm gonna do i'm gonna trick you into but instead it's like how do i court you like how do i court this aspect of because it is me too like how do i court this aspect of myself and this how do i court the great mystery this dream that is such a great mystery i mean like we take for granted that you know we're on a rock spinning around through eternal space that came into existence out of nothing from nowhere, no, no when, and uh, that we just We've been here for like a finger click. <laughs> yeah, and we think you know we have. I mean, this is why the Greeks said that the greatest sin or the greatest, you know, the the the, the worst quality we could have is hubris. It was considered worse than anything else is the fact that, oh, I know everything. And, you know, I think we, we live, our, our scientism is in a state of hubris that, oh, we've got it all figured out. You know, just there's a couple things we don't know about. And then you bring a little thing like lucid dreaming in and it's all of a sudden like, holy crap, what is it that we know at all? Yeah. You know, there was a there's a story that B. Alan Wallace, the famous Buddhist scholar, told a retreat I was on with him last year. And it was in the late 1700s. Um, that the Royal Society of Science were encouraging graduates not to study science because they said, we've nailed it. You know, we've not, Newton's got it down. We're done. Uh, study something else for graduates because there's, there's no more research to be done. Imagine that thinking they'd nailed it in the 1700s. So much so they were advising graduate students not to study science. They were like, you know, take it up to this level, but then you've literally learned everything there is. I mean, what the fuck, man? And I think where we've gone from the 1700s to now, you know, with, with quantum entanglement and now the fact we can have spooky action at a distance with things big enough to see. I mean, that was nuts. And then, you know, stuff that came out early last year that, that you know, quantum entanglement isn't just for subatomic particles. They, they've now seen it changing like things you can see, like tiny, tiny, still really tiny things, but tiny bits of metal. Uh, which you're affecting you're like this is fucking insane that's like telekinesis essentially we, it's I like mean it's 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 crazy and we and we don't believe it because if we were to believe it we'd probably will have massive panic attacks because you know it is it's it's disorienting yeah. <laughs> where's the center yeah you know are we? who are we <laughs> I think the reason we would have panic attacks, I asked this question yesterday. I started to have like, I, I often will have mystical experiences that are very, you know, it would totally, totally sober, ha- start to have mystical experiences. And there's a fear that comes up sometimes when they happen. Sometimes they're beautiful and I don't feel afraid at all, but sometimes they happen and I begin to feel afraid. And uh, I think that the reason that we might have a panic attack is because we feel alone, you know? Uh, and I think as, as we begin to have more of these conversations and as 
you know, people begin, I mean, I kind of view that this whole, like, I I kind of feel like you're a kindred soul or a kindred spirit as well, you know, Charlie. And uh, as we begin to find one another, you know, I picture like a Stephen King stand, you know, the the novel stand or something, you know, as we begin to find each other, uh, it becomes more safe to have these mystical experiences and they're not so disorienting. I think why a lot of people have them when they're drug induced or medicine induced, however you want to call it, is it's more comforting because you could have this crazy experience and go, well, you know, yeah, that's beautiful. And I had all this insight, but maybe it was just the medicine. You know, you have that little thing where like it could have just, it's it, just a drug, you know, yeah, well, just, a just a dream. Yeah. But when you start having it and move and things start moving and action in your one, you like, you don't even have waking connected or whatever you called it, the shared reality as an escape. It's like, Holy shit! This is like the the great mystery unfolding in front of me. I'm looking at the embodied living body of God moving through me and my environment. Woo! Yeah, and Pan, right? Panic, yeah. Pan, the god of the underworld. You know, there's a great the god of from, nightmares. Yeah, yeah great quote from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He says the Vajrayana practitioner, so the the, the practitioner of tantric Buddhism, should always be be on the edge of panic. Huh? Tell me why? Why is that? That's such. Well, because the only difference between, or in my limit, limited experience, the only difference between an experience of, of emptiness and a panic attack is context. Physically, they feel exactly the same, like this dropping away, this feeling of dying, this feeling of I'm either going to faint, die, or wake up in a bed somewhere I'm dreaming. Like that, All the qualities of a panic attack and experience of emptiness, physically, they're exactly the same. And probably neurologically, if you look at the brain, it's probably doing the same thing. The only difference is context. In a panic attack, I'm going, I wish this would stop. An experience of emptiness, I'm going, oh my God, this is it. But physiologically, it's the same. It's this feeling of death, which is scary for the ego, right? Um, but yeah, he says the Vajrayana practitioner should always be on the edge of panic, which is kind of comforting, right? <laughs> comforting or scary. I don't know which way to interpret yeah, it. Yeah, in a strange, no, in a strange way, it points to what I just said. It's that feeling like, the reason I would feel afraid of panic, it creates a feedback loop, is because I would have panic when nobody else would. And I would think that this is bad and that I'm dying. Uh, I remember I had a very mystical experience when I was 13 where everything got really cartoon-like and I pushed myself. I was I remember pushing myself off the floor and I could hear yelling in the background and there's a pool of blood on the floor and my black and white cat is licking up the blood. This is happening in shared reality here and I put, in reality, in reality in yeah shared, shared reality. reality and i like and i the words that are coming out of my mouth i say i'm dying i'm dead i'm dead i'm dead and uh for whatever reason it felt as though i was dying and i was dead and my jaw was broken and and nobody knows exactly what happened there's been theories of what happened but somehow i think i just blacked out i don't know and fell to the ground and shot you know broke my jaw and my teeth were through my lip and yeah anyways it was a major turning point in my life it was uh you know a coming of age initiation that happened uh uh through this bizarre experience i remember just being in a different realm like right as it was happening like it felt like being carried like i was like oh this is beautiful you know and then waking up and pushing my, I remember the weight of pushing, going into my body and feeling heavy, pushing myself away from the floor. And uh, I ended up, do you know the mythologist Michael Mead? Are you familiar with him? No. 
Yeah, uh, I had him on the podcast and I, I had an insight fresh on the podcast and it was, uh, and I was like, yeah, and this thing happened when I was 13 and he had something happen to him when he was 13 that was very intense. Um, and uh, and I said, yeah, in the background, and he goes, yeah, you know, it's about, you know, mentorship. Generally at that age, you would find your mentor. And I was like, yeah, it's weird. Like the movie Mr. Mom was playing in the background. That was the movie that was playing when this whole incident happened. And a mentor is actually considered a male mother. So it was like, again, this like dream reality, like like that little hint, like was there the whole time. It was this, and he calls it an underworld initiation where essentially you like plummet into the depths and, uh, but you learn and your soul grows. It learns its limits and, you know, and it, it forges character. Anyways, I think that I think it's so beautiful. It's been great talking to you today. I wanted to see if you wanted to share anything else. I know we were right. At, I'm looking at the time, and it's almost it's very auspicious on my recorder. It's exactly a, uh, an hour and eight minutes. Oh, 108. That's cool. Nice. Well, I like I like that, especially from a from a to to, to Buddhist it up. That's that's brilliant. Um, I don't know, man. No, it's been great. I, we we we've had a great chat. I guess I'd encourage people to check out the summit. Um, I've got loads of online stuff I'm doing. So you can check out my website, charliemorley.com. A lot of it free, but some of it paid too. So there's something for everyone. And um, yeah, tell people, check out Lucid Dreaming, you know, because we're asleep for a third of our lives. And there's this really cool practice you can do during that third of your life that makes the two thirds that you're awake even more cool as well, because you, you, have, you have more wakefulness, you have more awareness. It can be great for working with PTSD and trauma. It can be great for having fun. It can be great for doing a spiritual practice. It's, um, you know, my little mission in life is that by the time I die, I want lucid dreaming to be a household term and I want there to be lucid dreaming therapists and I want it to have, to have helped as many people as it can. Um, so as long as I'm, I'm around, I'm going to keep trying to do that. And if not, you'll just come back in your dreams any, in people's dreams anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, if not, I'll try and make it lucidly through the death bardo, get quickly reincarnated and you'll, I'll be like a little three-year-old. Hey, Zach, remember me? <laughs> Yo, Charlie, get me back in the podcast. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Are you working on any books right now or any, mm. any, any new uh, retreats or anything like that other than the summit? Oh, yeah. I've got a new book. Yeah, I've got this new book I'm writing called Sleeping Warrior, Five Practices to Transform Your Sleep. And it's based on all the work I've been doing with the veterans for the last few years. Um, so it's only got like of those five practices, one of them is lucid dreaming, but the others are coherent breathing and breath work, uh, reframing of nightmares, yoga nidra, and normalization of sleep patterns. So I guess it's my first book that's more for kind of mainstream stress and trauma uh, and insomnia stuff. Um, coherent breathing. What does that mean? That just drew me out. Like that's something that sounds super fascinating. Oh, coherent breathing is brilliant, man. When I did this scholarship where I had to go to America and I got this um, scholarship to look at best practice for PTSD treatments in veterans, the one that came out on top, like above all in my studies anyway, was a coherent breathing. And it's very simple to explain. Uh, we walk around breathing at about 15 breaths a minute. Coherent breathing is actually any breath rate between three and six breaths a minute. But particularly when you hit five breaths a minute for a person of average height and weight, if you're way over six foot, that changes a little bit. But a person of average height and weight, if you breathe at five breaths a minute, you hit something called the resonant range, uh, which basically puts your uh, heart rate variability in perfect synchrony. Um, and it's very, very good for you. So basically, if you breathe at five breaths a minute for at least seven minutes, everything that can be measured in the lab is optimized. So breath rate is optimized. Digestion is optimized. Parasympathetic activation is optimized. Uh, blood flow to major organs is optimized. 
everything that can be measured, that could be measured is optimized. Coherent breathing, super easy to learn. You can get an app to download it. So it's, it's free. You don't have to learn from my book or anything. It's open source stuff. Very good for working with uh, the military people. Well, for veterans, people with PTSD, because, you know, people say, oh, I can't meditate. And I say, well, can you breathe? Oh, of course I breathe. Why are you being silly? Okay, well, do, look, dude, I want you to breathe at this rate for seven minutes at least. And if after minute eight, you don't feel slightly different, forget you ever met me, but at least give it a shot. Give me eight minutes of breathing at five breaths a minute. And it's so visceral. Like you can be in the midst of a panic attack, but if you bring your breath rate down to, to a coherent range between three and six breaths a minute, whether you're in the midst of a panic attack or not, the brain listens to the lungs. You know, when we see something scary, we go, <gasps> and it's actually that, huh, that inhale is happening before the brain's even registered the scary thing, right? So actually the brain is depending on the lungs to say, am I safe or am I not? So because it's so rare for us to breathe so slowly, if you do breathe so slowly, the brain goes, whoa, we must be really fucking safe because you are breathing chilled out. So because of that, I'm going to now flood the body with these calming chemicals. I'm going to allow us to rest and digest. I'm going to calm us down. Um, so it's cool because it's not cognitive. It's like the opposite of cognitive therapy. It's based on breathing really slowly, affects the body, and is really good for you. So that's coherent breathing. Yeah. Is there somebody that that theorized this or wrote a book about it that brought this into awareness? Yeah, so the dude, uh, main coherent breathing guy is Stephen Elliott. He kind of coined the term and he's got the website coherentbreathing.com and stuff. So he's a great guy and I'm interviewing him for the book. And the people who I learned from are these two New York-based psychiatrists called Pat Gerberg and Richard Brown. And they combine coherent breathing with uh, Qigong and yoga. Now, once you combine coherent breathing with movement, you then it goes into overdrive. Um, and they've done a lot of work with the military in the US. And because they're mainstream psycho, uh, psychiatrists, not kind of like hippie ones, but like mainstream, um, when they say things like 20 minutes a day of, of coherent breathing with movement is better than a lot of the medications we can offer you, you take note because these guys prescribe medications. They're psychiatrists. Um, and they found that a lot of the breathing stuff is simply better. And there's no side effects from it. So yeah, check them out. They're called Breath, Body, Mind is their organization. And uh, it's uh, Richard Brown and Patricia Gerbarg. Breath, Body, breath, body Mind? Yeah, or Body, Breath, Mind. One of those. Sorry, I forget. Yeah, I'm super interested in this because I find that I hold my breath a lot. Somewhere I develop this like, <clears throat> somewhere I develop this, I think from getting like punched in the stomach a bunch of times as a kid, but I, I developed this thing where I, I I feel that there's like this safety in like contracting. And so it's taken years to really like relax my stomach and like relax. And I, I still like one of the first things I find myself doing is stopping breathing. <clears throat> and I could even think of family members and they all breathe really shallow. Like, so I've like, thankfully I've moved it into my stomach, but some, I still think I breathe many, many times per minute. So uh, yeah, I think somehow that oh, really dude, breathing could be really good. For yeah. I'm going to check that out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that might be a nice synchronicity that you just happened to ask because you said it pinged out at you when I was listing those things. So maybe this is another one of those nice synchronistic moments and maybe coherent breathing is going to change your life. And maybe we just recorded that. Yeah, that's life. beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to end with any, what is your favorite? If you had it, what, if you could only do one uh, lucid dreaming technique, and you could only have one. You went to an island, and in this strange place, in this strange dimension, you could only bring one lucid dreaming technique with you. 
uh, what would that technique be? It would be enthusiasm. That would be the technique. Like the first thing I teach in my workshops, so the first technique I teach is called dream planning, where I get people to draw out the lucid dream they would love, the perfect lucid dream, the like ideal thing they want to do. That is the most powerful technique. It's, it's basically the why rather than the how. There are a lot of people who know all the how of lucid dreaming. They walk around all day doing the hand checks, keeping the dream diary. And they say, I'm not having any lucid dreams. And I say, what's your dream plan? Like, what's your reason why? And they say, oh, I don't have one. I'm like, that's why you're not getting lucid. Then you find other people who are doing no techniques. They've come to one half an hour talk or they've listened to this podcast or something. And they've thought, wow, imagine if I can go into the lucid dream and heal my childhood trauma. And just the possibility and the enthusiasm towards engaging that aim, that's the most powerful lucid dreaming technique there is. That's beautiful. I could picture somebody like me a couple of years ago or even me now. I'll put it on I'll I'll blame it on a past me. They would say, "Oh gosh, as you're working that in and you're working writing out that beautiful perfect lucid dream, uh you get another wish and it's what technique can you bring with the enthusiasm? What technique would that be?" It, it would it would be dream planning. Okay, I'll just extend that. It would be actually like a three-step dream plan. So, working out like writing down what you want to do in your lucid dream then drawing the lucid dream. So using like stick men or, or, or being more creative, you like, so actually drawing yourself, like embracing the demon or integrating the, the trauma or whatever. And, <coughs> sorry, that's the puppy. Um, and then the Sankalpa, which is like the thing you would actually call out in the lucid dream. So once you get lucid, what would you call out? So it could be, you know, childhood trauma come to me or I'm ready to embrace my, my, my inner child or something. So that three-step process is dream planning. And, and that plus enthusiasm, that's actually the, the best technique I've got. Beautiful. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m., and we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.